Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 19, 2012, and my guest is Steve Hankey of Johns Hopkins University and the Cato Institute. Steve, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. Great to be with you. Now, our topic for today is hyperinflation. Uh, what is hyperinflation? Well, traditionally, uh, it's been defined as any rate of uh, price increase that exceeds 50% in one month. And uh, the the person who did the work and eventually defined it was uh, Professor Philip Kagan, who was at Columbia, and uh, that's uh, that's the origin of the fifty percent. And since then, it's been uh, traditionally used by everyone who's studying hyperinflation. And historically, some famous hyperinflations would include the Weimar Republic uh, in Germany, right in the twenties, right. Uh, yes, that that one actually peaked out in October of 1923, but it, it was only uh, the 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 fifth highest one in the world, and and, and it was much below the 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 big high ones above it. What uh, are some of those? The, the, well, the, the it peaked out in October of 1923. This is a Weimar at 29,500 percent. In one month. Now that that's an awfully big number. Seems like it. <laughs> but uh, it, it, if then we jump up to number three, uh, and and by the way, there are fifty-seven countries that have had hyperinflation rust. But if we jump up to number three, that was Yugoslavia in January of nineteen ninety-four, and and that one was three hundred and thirteen million percent. So we're so we're mm. going Germany twenty-nine. Thousand five hundred up to thirteen point three million in Zimbabwe in mid-November. That one peaked out mid-November of two thousand eight. It peaked out at seventy-nine billion percent in a month, uh, and, and then Hungary uh, is is got the the number one spot, July nineteen forty-six. And and di- I'm not going to give you the. All the zeros, but that one peaked out at a, at a daily equivalent, daily equivalent rate of two hundred and seven percent in a day. Well, now so, it's hard to relate to those numbers, but when, when we yeah, it, it's very hard to relate. That's one, you know, this this uh, piece that I did with one of my assistants, uh, Nick Cruz. We we listed all the fifty seven. We've documented now all all known. Some weren't known until we did this. Uh, piece that will eventually be appearing as a uh, chapter in a book right now. It's a Cato working paper. But um, to, to get your head around the numbers, the, the monthly rates get so high that the best way to do it is to translate them into daily equivalent rates. And, and then uh, an, another thing that we've done is, is have a metric for the time required for prices to double. So in Hungary, yeah. that that huge inflation, that's number one, the, the prices were doubling in 15 hours. Zimbabwe, 27.4 hours. Yugoslavia, 1.4 days and so forth. So um, of those, the, the, the thing that it, it kind of intrigues me about it and and the reason I kept pushing ahead with this research, which was kind of onerous, basically, to, trying to get get all the metrics organized and find all the cases and actually come across some cases that have never been reported before. Uh, out of the 57 cases, I, I've been involved either directly or, or closely with uh, the... the uh, uh, Stopping of ten of the of the fifty seven. So, as they say, I've got some experience with stopping these. So, before we get to that, though, let's talk about how they. Well, I actually want to just talk first about the logistics. When prices are doubling every fifteen hours, I mean, is that really a meaningful f- phenomenon in terms of trying to measure it? I mean, people 
you're getting if you're actually making transactions at those prices, you're getting up early to. <laughs> I mean, every second you're you're, you're losing money that you you, know, you can't scratch your your um, your ankle on the way to the store. Well, yeah, you it 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 actually is meaningful in the, in the sense that the 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 unit of account that you're using isn't the hyperinflating currency the unit of account you're really using is, is some solid currency like it, it could be gold it was gold in Greece for example or now it's typically the US dollar so the anything that a that a merchant wants to sell you they they will first think in terms of how, how much in dollars and and then they'll translate usually they'll get on their cell phone and ask a dealer what the rate is for for whatever the local currency is vis-a-vis the dollar and the, if you've got local money they'll charge you that or maybe they'll charge you that plus a, a premium because they're going to have to run down to a money changer and change it right and that and the time depending on how fast they are will uh, will be the premium that they charge you but if there is no uh available obvious Alternative to the local currency that's uh, having that problem, uh, pretty quickly the economic system breaks down and you're in a barter economy, right? Well, um, you, you you do have a lot of barter. Let me give you the Yugoslav case because I, I was there. I was a, a advisor to the to the Markovic government. Now this was before the hyperinflation, but but right before it was in, ni- in 1990 until uh, the uh, uh, middle of 1991, uh, and and the uh, uh, barter was occurring, and and what you would do, you had relatives that were, uh, in most cases, let's say you were in Belgrade, you you would have all, all your relatives out in the country would would be supplying you really with foodstuffs, and uh, and and other transactions in Yugoslavia were always taking place in Deutschmarks anyway. Any significant purchase required Deutschmarks, and the reason why is that they'd had endemic, very high inflation in Yugoslavia from 1971 until 91. The average annual rate of inflation was 76 percent. It was the second highest average annual rate over that 20-year period that's that was recorded. Zaire was number one. So the economy. In a hyperinflation or a very even a very higher inflation, what happens? Yes, there, there, there's a lot of barter that starts seeping into the system, and 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 basically, the hyperinflation throws a monkey wrench into the economic system because you you can't calculate costs properly and so forth. It, right. it becomes very cumbersome. But the the other thing that happens is that foreign currencies start uh, being substituted for the local currency. Because people so, don't, because so, people don't so want the, uh, the, the, the you, you get currency substitution taking place, and 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 in a place like, uh, in a place like, uh, like uh, Zimbabwe, for example, what happened with that hyperinflation is that eventually people just stopped using the Zimbabwe dollar in in November of two thousand and eight. It, it came to an end, and there was spontaneous. Dollarization that took place, where the U.S. dollar and to some extent the South African rand and a few other uh, currencies from borderline countries uh, crept in, and, and the Zimbabwe dollar just wasn't used for anything. Right. And the next step was that the government was forced then to officially dollarize the country and change the budget. And require taxes and so forth to be paid in dollars. Hmm. So the Zimbabwe dollar is gone now, and the Zimbabwe is officially dollarized. So the trillion dollar Zimbabwe note that one of my students sent me—you're uh, saying that's worthless now? I'm very disappointed. Well, uh, no, on on eBay, it, it has a lot more value than it ever did when it was, <laughs> it was circulating. So, what? This is a, a softball question. What causes hyperinflation? Uh, but there's a harder question behind that. Obviously, what causes it is a rapid increase in the money supply. 
but why? A rapid, very rapid increase in the money supply, and 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 you get this. See, you get back to the ultimately. Well, what causes the money supply to to right. explode? Why would a nation and usually do that? that? That's the fiscal situation. And in Yugoslavia, for example, at the end, uh, about ninety percent of of all the uh, government expenditures were were being financed by the printing press, by the central bank. In other words, taxes that they were uh, receiving were only about ten percent of the total amount of expenditures. So the budget deficit, in short, was running about ninety percent. And so, rather than cut expenditures or raise taxes, which may not neither of which was politically appealing. They just printed the money and punished their students. They printed the money, yeah. They taxed people through this process we're talking about. They devalued the, any currency that people were holding and made their lives less pleasant. Right. So we're, we're going to talk about Iran in, in a few minutes. But before we do that, uh, let's talk about the United States, um, which uh, we're not having hyperinflation. But we do have a fiscal problem. We do have uh, – we're spending – uh, a relatively large amount relative to what we take in, about uh, a trillion more uh, than we take in, a little over a trillion. We've done it for four years in a row. Uh, we did it before that for, at a significant amount as well. And uh, people keep buying our bonds, and so it seems okay. But one of the institutions that's buying those bonds is the Federal Reserve. I've read that a very large portion of U.S. Treasury auctions are being purchased by the Federal Reserve. Can you explain yeah, it's, that? It's Ex- a, a, been about a, since they started the so-called quantitative easing. I think roughly since the, the Lehman collapse in September of 2008. I think it's about 75 percent. Right. Of the, so of the total is being purchased by the uh, Fed. So can you explain to me what that means and what it portends for the future? Well, it, 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 what, let's just start with Lehman's collapse in September 2008. That's a convenient date. Uh, since that point in time, the Federal Reserve's uh, balance sheet has increased by roughly about three and a half times. So, so that, that means they're, they're, they're buying a lot, a, a lot of these bonds. And, and and that's where they go on the asset side of the balance sheet. Now, uh, that means that high-powered money, or what I call state money, the amount of money produced by the state is is a, you know more or less tripled. It's just exploded, and and this uh, has many people concerned, and they they get excited and say we're going to have hyperinflation tomorrow. That that's a hyperinflation nexus. Yeah, so it looks the, the Fed's buying all these bonds or their balance sheets exploding, the high-powered money is is increased very rapidly. And people conclude that well, this is going to be like Yugoslavia or the Weimar Republic or something like that. Now, it it has meant that state money, Russ, has increased from about six and a half percent of the total money supply when you when you measure the money supply properly by with a broad measure like M M three. So we went from state money being six and a half percent at about the time Lehman collapsed, until until now it's about fifteen percent. So, you know, you've more than doubled the size of state money. But the problem is, I said 15%. Now state money is 15% of the total amount of the money supply, meaning that state money is peanuts. What, what, what really is important is bank money. And bank money is created by the commercial banking system and shadow banking system and 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 that's what really counts so in a way we we have had the following scenario develop after lehman we've had ultra loose monetary policy with regard to state money in the federal reserve but with the financial regulation that it was legislated with Dodd Frank and and was also with what's called the Basel capital requirements and specifically Basel three, which is is being uh, imposed on banks to increase the the capital asset ratios of the banks. These two things, financial 
regulation in Basel have, in effect, imposed an ultra-tight monetary policy on the banking system and bank money. So as a result of the two, we've had the total amount of the money supply actually being very anemic, not not growing very much at all. And, and in fact, if you look at a, at a trend line since 1999, uh, excuse me, since since 2009, and and look at you know the the end point today of the trend line as you're going left to right, that that point is is about seven and a half percent higher than the actual level of the money supply that we have. So you could argue there's relative to trend, we've got a deficiency of about 7.5% in broad money. And the reason why is that the dominating feature has been the re-regulation of banks and the tight monetary policy imposed on bank money, which which accounts for 85% of the total amount of money in in the economy. So that's consistent with Scott Sumner's view, who who argues that monetary policy has been very tight rather than loose. Everyone looks at the at the aggressive so-called aggressive policy of the Fed. Uh, but but my question then is um you're saying that banks have been highly regulated and and you can also argue that you know, the economic situation is not very optimistic right now. It's kind of un- uncertain. But banks have huge excess reserves. So you're you're saying they're constrained, but it appears they're very unconstrained. Why aren't they? Oh no, no, they're profit maximizing. Banks are profit maximizing. So so what happens is if if you are imposing capital requirements on banks vis-a-vis Basel III, and and you're and you're requiring the capital to asset ratio of a bank to go up. How do you change that ratio? Well, uh, one, one, one way to do it is to, to raise capital and, and, and increase the numerator in the capital asset ratio. The, the problem with that is that the price of shares for banks now is, is much below the book value of the shares. And if you actually issue, uh, uh, more shares and, and try to raise capital, you're diluting the existing shareholders when you have those conditions existing. And, and so the existing shareholders don't want to raise more capital. So what, what you try to do is reduce the assets that you have. And specifically, you want to reduce what's called the risk assets, those that, that come under the umbrella of Basel III that, re, that require a certain High ratio. Of capital right. to be set aside against them. So here's what, here's what we've had since, since Lehman. We've, we've had loans uh, to commercial enterprises ha- have gone down in the United States. Uh, mortgages have gone down in the United States. Interbank lending has essentially disappeared, which is almost the lifeblood of, of the banking system as the interbank. So what's gone up? Because the, the, the total amount of the, of the uh, assets that banks have, the consolidated system has gone up. So what's gone up? Well, one thing that's gone up, government bonds because government bonds are deemed to be risk free by Basel you don't have to right. set aside any capital to to buy government bonds so government bonds have exploded the holding of government bonds the other thing that's exploded are you you mentioned excess reserves well you've got cash cash has gone gone way up so banks find it profitable to avoid the Basel regulations in effect by accumulating government bonds and cash. And they make, they make money at it because there's a, there's a yield spread between the amount they're getting on the cash and, and the amount that they're having to, to pay for the money they've borrowed to, uh, to, to, to go into cash or go into excess reserves. I mean, now excess reserves, reserves at the Fed are actually receiving interest. Yeah, so I, I've always been puzzled by this, so maybe you can help me. What, the story you've just told is that banks have rationally responded to the incentives of regulation and the Fed offering reserves to um, 
accumulate large excess reserves uh, rather than issue more more stock, rather than raise more money. Um, as a result, or maybe I'm getting the narrative wrong, but at the same time, at least, uh, the money supply is limping along, not exploding, despite the high balance sheet of the increased balance sheet of the Fed. So uh, Ben Bernanke knows all this. Uh, he knows all these facts. They're not secrets. You're not. You aren't. You and I aren't the only people and the listeners of Econ Talk that know that M3 is actually down, not up. What the heck are they doing? What's your guess as to what the heck they're thinking? Well, uh, I, the 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 big problem is in in, in econ- economic lingo is that what we've been talking about and what I've been talk I've been talking as a monetarist, an old fashioned monetarist, and and in particular a, a, a broad money monetarist. Bro- broad money counts, and 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 it and it's the thing that dominates. Uh, the That's economic picture. Broad meaning including uh, bank money and not just state money, not just right, reserves. Right. Ban- uh, state money and uh, as as well as as well as bank money and uh, ending ending up with, with something. I mean the best measure really we have is is what Professor Burnett has been producing and that's the Divisia M four uh, that's that's the broadest measure and the, the measure that's measured correctly and and so forth and 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 that's been lagging behind. Now it, it's picking up just a little bit, but that measure is is only growing at, at about a four and a half percent per annum rate. I should say year over year. The year over year rate of growth is is still very very slow in this broad measure, and it's uh, it's it's. It's now relatively high compared to where it was uh, a, a year or two ago. But just to just to put it in perspective, oh, well, oh, back, no, hang yeah, on, Bernanke, yeah, hang on, hang on. Let me let me let me <laughs> let me re-enter you back into uh, this the issue of Bernanke in a different way. Yeah. He famously said, oh, "We'll never let." This is before he was chair of the Fed, right? He, I think he, at a conference with Milton Friedman, he famously said, "We've learned our lesson from the Depression when we let um, the, the money supply drop, right? Because bank money shrank during the Great Depression dramatically, right? We had all these closures and right. we had a, a contraction of lending. And by bank money, you mean all the the liquidity that banks produce through their their lending based on those reserves that they hold at the Fed. And so he said, "We'll never let that happen again." And what you're saying is, he let it happen again. Oh, he he's he, he absolutely doesn't have his. He, he, I think he's he's probably one of the worst chairmen we've ever had at the Fed, and uh, he, he's he's strictly not a monetarist. There's no question about it. He he's an inflation targeter. That's he, he's made his reputation and is an inflation targeter, and as long as they're hitting that target. And, and now, let us say it's between the, it's in the zero to two percent range. Right. Uh, although one one of the um, uh, Fed governors, um, a president of regional Fed, Evans, has indicated that maybe three percent would be a an appropriate Acceptable. top level. And we can we can get into that if we, if we want to get out in those weeds a no, little bit later. I don't. Go ahead. Keep going. But, but 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 at any rate, the 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 bottom line is that Bernanke is not a monetarist, uh, and and he's certainly not a uh, supply sider. He doesn't have a supply side orientation on monetary policy. And the supply siders, you see, they they like to look at prices. Not quantities. So, uh, unlike a monetarist who would want to be looking at the quantity of money, they would be keeping their eye on prices. Now, what do I mean by that? That, that means the foreign exchange rates, uh, the the yield curve, uh, uh, the gold, uh, maybe a basket of, of primary commodities of twenty or twenty five commodities. They, they'd be looking at things like that, and 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 asset prices, the stock market. Uh, as well as commodity prices, as well as foreign exchange, as well as interest rate and the yield curve. That, that would be kind of a supply-side type of approach. The monetarist would be looking at the quantity of money mainly. I, I'm actually looking at both, to, to tell you the truth. Um, but where's Bernanke? He's, he, he doesn't even have those prices on his dashboard. He, he, if, you, if you look at what he's looking at, it doesn't include the, the dollar exchange rate. 
the the critical thing, the dollar exchange rate, the price of gold. Not those those are, he's, he claims he's not looking at those. So, with the benefit of hindsight, what should he have done? Given that you're arguing that he's let M3 or M4, these broad measures of liquidity in the economy, shrink, that's had a real impact on the economy. It's slowed the recovery. It's made it anemic. What could he or should he have done? A lot of people have faulted him for being way too aggressive. You're saying he wasn't aggressive enough. How could he have implemented a policy to make up for the, the shrinkage in bank in bank money? Well, he could have come out against the Dodd-Frank financial legislation. Uh, that would have been a, 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 maybe a politically dangerous thing to do, uh, going head-to-head with Congress. But the other, other uh, the other thing he could have done, and, is, and you is mentioned that, put a freeze on Basel. Basel he has a direct in, input into the capital requirements of banks. But you see that the reason the Americans love Basel three is, is that the European banks that that the American banks are competing with in the international market, they're they're re- relatively undercapitalized compared to the American banks. So basically, by imposing Basel III, you're saying you're mandating – you have a government mandate that says that the European banks have to shrink faster than the American ones. Mm. Lovely. Uh, how did the European banks fail to get that uh, fixed? They knew that too, right? Well – uh, they, or is, they this, a, or is this an unintended consequence? The origin, yeah, the origin of this is 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 interesting. Uh, my my diagnosis of the thing is that there was a uh, the the crisis really started in August of 2007, and and it happened in in uh, Europe and and the UK in particular. There there was a a bank called Northern Rock. Yep. Northern Rock was a mortgage institution. It was solvent at the time, and it was very profitable. And and their funding source for the mortgage, they they would lend long with a long term mortgage, and but the funding sources they were using the money market funds issued in France, and and in August, two of these. Froze up. Two of these money, French money market funds froze up, and and so the Northern Rock people went to the Bank of England and they said, you know, we we need the lender of last resort. We're sol- we're solvent. We're willing to pay whatever the penalty rate is and and borrow from the Bank of England. Uh, King, who who was uh, still is the head of the Bank of England, was fine. Uh, everything was fine, and and they arranged to do this. But there was one little catch, and that is there was a reporter from the BBC that was friendly with somebody working at the Bank of England, and and the chap at the Bank of England leaked the information that Northern Rock was going to get a substantial lender of last resort loan from the Bank of England, and that was reported by the BBC. Well, what what happened then? The depositors, of course, panicked because they said, "Oh, it's it's obvious that the Northern Rock is bust, and they've had to go to the Bank of England, and and we we want our money back." So you had the first bank run in a hundred years in the UK, and and that really burnt the politicians at the at the time. Uh, Gordon Brown was a prime minister. And uh, Darling was the uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, and and of course they they ended up having to to foot the bill for Northern Rock ultimately going under, which was a big bill because of this bank run business. I thought they were solvent. They yeah well they 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 were solvent but what 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 if you uh, what if every every depositor comes in and they want their money today. Well, if they're solvent, they have the assets to cover it. So you've got a liquidity problem. You have to liquidate everything that you have to to pay everybody off. And even though uh, on paper it looks like you're solvent, and and you have good paper, and you've got a profitable operation, you're 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 forced to cough up the money. Yeah, I don't know. I don't understand that. But that we can come back to. 
that or maybe skip it so, because so, in so, theory so at any rate well, but well in theory, it's a liquidity thing they needed to come up with the money so they sell, needed to, basically they needed to liquefy right. their asset side of their balance sheet in, in a matter of a few days and the only way they could do that is to have the government come in and bail them out well, okay. to, to pay the depositors off and as a result of this, of course, there was a political price, and, and uh, as I say, Gordon Brown got burnt. Uh, he was he was holding the bill, and the taxpayers were upset uh, because they had to pay the depositors off that had uh, wanted their money back from Northern Rock, and he led then this campaign to recapitalize banks every place, and and it became kind of an international. Mantra and everybody, the the herd followed, and that's where the Basel thing accelerated and got going. And and then in the United States, it, it came, and and Secretary Geithner is a big advocate of recapitalizing yep. banks. Part of it is really not too uh, is a little bit disingenuous because it, it's it's advantageous to the U.S. as relative to uh, areas of. Europe, where they're undercapitalized and and have to a big gap to make up to get back to Basel three. By capitalized, you mean uh, have a lower rate of leverage, meaning having a larger asset base rather than a uh, borrowed money to finance your operations. No. Correct. Well, uh, not, not not asset base, uh, capital base, ec- equity. Equity. You got to in. You got in, yeah, to increase. The equity is remember on the on the right hand side of the balance sheet. So, so you got to have to have a bigger equity and and less borrowing on that right hand side. And on on the left hand side, that's where the assets are. And of course, you you can increase your capital asset ratio very quickly by by just dumping assets and and not raising any more capital. And, and that's more or less what's been going on because it's it's so unattractive to raise capital now due to the fact that share prices are below book value for most banks. But the argument for this capital, this recapitalization is that if banks have more equity and less uh, borrowing, they're, they have a bigger cushion if their asset values fall, that, yeah, that, right. that's, that, that's, that's the argument that's of Basel. The, that's the idea, and that comes back. What you said about leverage is exactly right. I mean, it it it, it forces you to have less leverage than would be the case if you had a, a lower capital asset ratio. So let let's come back to this issue of um, of the risk of inflation of a sizable amount in the United States. So I'm going to review where we <clears throat> how we got to where we are in the conversation. You argued uh, convincingly to me, but then again, I'm, I'm a monetarist, but you argued that, that although high-powered money, state money you call it, uh, reserves of the Fed, uh, at the Fed, all that's grown dramatically. It's more than doubled since 2008. But yeah, there was more a sh- than tripled. But there was a shrinkage of lending and other liquidity in the private sector, what you call bank money, so that the total money supply, the total amount of liquidity sloshing around the economy, has fallen. And as a result, our economy is is hesitating, and, and hyperinflation is the last thing we have to worry about, despite the massive uh, activity of the Fed. What Alan Meltzer would argue and has argued on this program, and I don't know if he'll still argue. He'd still argue it was a few years ago. But his argument was, well, yeah, but eventually when banks get more optimistic about the future and the economy starts to recover, then all those excess reserves, instead of sitting on the balance sheet of the Fed, uh, they're going to go out into the real economy and there will be inflation uh, so that that bank money that had shrunk during the bad times will start to expand, and then the pressure will be on the Fed to to shrink back its state money, its its printing press money, and that's going to be politically unpalatable, and we're going to get significant inflation. What do you think of that argument? Well, uh, uh, Professor Meltzer and I have a correspondent on this, and as we've agreed, we 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 generally agree on almost everything. Except this point. Okay, good. <laughs> That's lively. I like that. So, and and uh, and it does put one in a very awkward position to 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 actually be uh, in disagreement with, shall we say? I, I think acknowledge Dean of yep. of the Federal Reserve now. That's right. His three volume uh, 
work on the Fed. I mean, um, so uh, let's get down to why I I don't agree. Uh, He's he's he you you made uh, Professor Meltzer's argument that that's Stelly's argument. Okay. Uh, My argument is well, if things start. If, uh, unfolding and banks get more optimistic and they, and they re- re- want to reduce the amount of cash they have and the, and the the amount of government bonds that they have and put it into commercial and industrial yeah. loans and mortgages and right. interbank lending and and all these things uh, we 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 will in short, increase the uh, the level of the money multiplier in the system, so that so that high powered money right now the, the money multiplier that is associated with that high powered money is let, let's say about five or six, depending on what uh, monetary aggregate you're looking at relative to high powered money. But let's just say this more more or less five or six relative to M three. And and it was before the crisis. It, it was it was about twelve. Yep. So the money multiplier is about ha- half of what it used to be. And, and another way of looking at, at what Professor Meltzer is saying is that well, he's worried about you know once the money multiplier goes back to show shall we say normal levels of right. ten or something, you, you that 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 state money will kind of goose the system. Yep. It'll it'll end up going bleeding through the banking system, the fractional reserve system, and and even if there was no change in the volume of state money circulating that that you would have a huge increase in bank money because the with the optimism the money multiplier would go back up to normal level and in bank money would increase and and therefore the broad measure of money would ultimately increase and yes you you would definitely have you know aggregate demand increasing and 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 getting up to you know some some level let's say in, in boom periods in the United States, I, the aggregate demand, the final sales to domestic purchasers, it gets up to you know seven and a half or eight percent, something like that. And if growth is about three percent, long-term trend rate of growth about three or three point one, three point two, just subtract the three point one from the seven and a half, and you've you've got inflation. Yep. So. So that 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 is a concern, but the 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 Fed should be able to realize the problem that they that they have gotten us into with with this inflation targeting, this inflation targeting scenario, and 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 the very low interest rates, big expansion of their balance sheet. I'm not saying that that's been a good policy. <laughs> Russ, I, I, but the reality is that that's what they've done, and they will have to face the music under the Meltzer kind of scenario. And he says they won't want to. He says he says they won't want to. Right? He says go, they won't want to. Politically, it'll be too unpleasant for the chair of the Fed to be called in front of Congress to ask why he's uh, taking away the punch bowl before the party's even getting started. Well, you know, but that's that's always something that the Fed chairman faces, and and I and I would say that in this case, it, it, they they should put Bernanke on the hot seat for for a number of things. Now, well, I'm with you there. Let um, let me take an implication of what you said. That's been I've asked many times on this program, which is. Why the Fed is paying reserves, uh, interest on reserves? Are you suggesting the possibility then that the Fed is paying the interest on reserves to compensate the banks for the unpleasant compliance with ba- with Basel III? This is a way to well, soften the it, blow. It, 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 it allows them to make to make uh, uh, you know good money on on risk free assets, basically, and 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 to with these profits to to recapitalize themselves and increase the capital asset ratio, and it gets back yeah to the to the Basel thing. I mean, it's a mechanism that 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 allows the banks to do this. They're 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 making very good money 
so on so-called risk-free assets, at least as defined by Basel, are risk-free. So the other day, I was meeting with some people who were much savvier and uh, much wealthier and wiser than I am, and they asked me about this issue. And they think the dollar, and they're not the only people I've met who, who believe this. They, they think the dollar is going to disappear. They think it's there's hyperinflation coming. You ought to be buying gold. Uh, we don't give financial advice on this program, so we're not we're not talking about that. But I'm talking about their perspective. They think the dollar is cooked. That the long run to to go beyond the immediate to, uh, today and tomorrow, but the, the fiscal situation in the United States, uh, we're going to end up like Zimbabwe. We're going to have too many promises that we've made to public pensions and to Medicare and Social Security. The Fed's already buying up all of those government bonds. They're going to keep doing that. And ultimately, we're, we're talking hyperinflation. The dollar's disappearing. So you're not that pessimistic. You're not as pessimistic as they are. No, I, I don't. I mean, you know, as far as gold goes, I, I like gold. And I'm not making any recommendation, but I've, I've done so on various Bloomberg shows and so forth. Uh, but but the, the the problem uh is is not going to be a zimbabwe hyperinflation i mean if if anything the, the the problem right now today is the fact that we have a deficiency in broad money for the reasons that i gave mainly because we we have imposed ultra ultra tight monetary policy on 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 bank money and that's that's what all these people are just missing the picture basically they're they're going on and on about state money and the fact that state money is is a portion of the total amount of the money supply has more than doubled since Lehman uh but but it, it's it's only 15% of the total yeah i like the, your point the 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 the, the, the big thing is bank money, and bank money is being crushed. So and, and that's why, overall, my assessment is we have a little deficiency in the money supply. Not 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 great like like they they do in the European monetary system, where you have places like Greek Greece, the deficiency is about forty five percent of the gap between where I think they should be with the money supply if they had been following a trend rate of growth in the money supply and, and where the money supply actually is. You've got about a 45% gap. And all these countries in Europe that are really in trouble, the southern countries, they have huge uh, monetary deficiencies. The, the only country in Europe that that is on trend is Germany. All the other ones are running big deficiencies. So let me ask a different let me ask a different concern that this uh, these folks had, which I also hear, which is we're going to end up like Greece. We can borrow money right now for some reason. You know, one argument is we're the tallest pygmy. You know, everybody else has lousy. They're even worse. So so they'll, people will still buy our bonds. But as our debt to GDP ratio continues to rise because of these fiscal issues, eventually we're going to we're going to. People are going to stop buying our bonds. We're going to go bust, and we're going to end up printing no, money. Don't, yeah, don't don't get me wrong. I'm I'm with them in in the sense that now, now you're talking about something else. We've yeah, kind I of know. shifted yeah, from hyper this hyperinflation yes. <laughs> thing to the to the fiscal yeah I'm situation. Shifting. I'm shifting. And the and and the fiscal situation is is a very simple problem. We have a huge problem, fiscal problem, in the United States, and. It bears some of the earmarks that that you've just repeated, but but the main thing here is that government expenditures relative to GDP are are at, at they're they're outside the the range that we've uh, observed in the United States since the end of World War II. They're, they're very high. Yep. So the problem isn't not enough taxes. The problem is cutting government expenditures and, and getting government expenditures down in the zone again. Getting getting that getting that number down from you know twenty five percent of GDP federal at the federal level to to something like twenty two, for example. Well, I agree with you philosophically, but why is that? What's holy or sanctified about nineteen or twenty two, or what's the big deal? 
Uh, I, I agree with you that that philosophically, twenty five percent of government. I don't like what they spend it on. I don't see. Any, I don't see that that's a good allocation of resources. That's my ideological position, my philosophical position. I could try to make a case for it empirically, but uh, why is it a crisis? What's wrong with so? It's twenty five. Big deal. Well, uh, well, here, here's the crisis. Once you get get out of the zone that we've been in since World War II, no matter what what political party, it's it's not a not really a partisan thing. In fact, the, the the, the the fiscally most prudent president we've had has, has been President Clinton. Correct. President Clinton actually reduced actually reduced government expenditures as a percent of GDP over his two-year term by 3.9%. Now, there's no other president that even comes close to that. And in the last two years, Clinton was president. He actually was running a fiscal surplus. Remember the big DLN. Yeah, sure. What's the, the, the big what's panic? The, treasury? That yeah. the, the the folks that you were talking with about what was going to happen with hyperinflation and the bonds. Their big panic was there wouldn't be any government bonds. Yeah. There wouldn't be any thirty-year paper left in the United States. And I, I didn't how, understand how would that. the economy <laughs> run if you couldn't <laughs> couldn't be trading thirty years and the yield curve would disappear and so on. So, so here's the problem. Uh, there, there isn't anything magic about being, as you point out, about being in in the zone. Let's say of you know around, around, around twenty. Let's, let's say, say twenty. More or less. It's historical level. Something like that. The the problem is that that we're going. We we're in a new regime now. We're we're up above that level that we've been at. The range. We're outside the range, and and transitions and regime changes. Are, are a problem. It, it's a little bit like, you know, they, they interviewed one of these guys that went down Niagara Falls in a barrel and he survived and came out at the other end and they said, well, sir, how, how was that ride? And he said, well, it, it was pretty calm above the falls and below the falls, but the transition was a bitch. Uh... And, and that's the problem we have. We're, we're in a transition now, and, and and if we stay above, it's going to it's going to be this Niagara Falls kind of problem. There's no question about it. So Why? we have to figure out Why? whether we want to go down the falls and go through the transition, or whether we uh, will dial back government expenditures and and get it down in the in the range that we've been at historically no but, no matter what party by the way yeah but so why is it it has nothing to do with parties but and so why on. is it like going over niagara falls we just borrow more money what's the big deal well you 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 raise the specter if you if if you're having to borrow a trillion dollars a a year that's a lot of bread as they say world I mean, capital you, market's pretty big the capital market is very big. We had absolutely no trouble doing this uh, to date, and you can see it as reflected in the interest rates and the, and the shape of the yield curve and all the rest of it in the United States. There's, there has been no problem, but uh, you, you, you can the, the markets run on expectations, and if, and if you expect this kind of borrowing as far as the eye can see and 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 no dialing back on government expenditures or or dramatic increases in taxes uh, uh eventually you'll you'll have a problem with the markets you'd think the, the so mar- the, the the markets will will eventually see through it um and they might not do it tomorrow but eventually they will and then what would happen well, in that case, interest rates would would just simply go up. Right now, you 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 and 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 you you get a lot of squeezing out of private activity. Right now, you see the pro- the problem in the United States. They're they're complaining your friends about the the specter of hyperinflation and the you know all the rest of it and loose money but the the reality is we're we're in a credit crunch in the United States for the reasons that I've given money's very hard to get what's the evidence for that that it's hard to get i've heard that as well and i hear it's well, true well you you look at look at the the uh the federal reserve system they they survey uh uh businesses 
and private individuals and the, and the so-called non-bank public and 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 you look at the surveys that they do and and you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that you know people are people people want to uh, borrow money and find it difficult to get it despite the fact that it's everywhere supposedly Right, there's all this money in the system, but you can't well, get it. it, it it's a paradox. Is, see, see, this is this is. Uh, let's look at mortgages just to get it down to yeah. ground level. Mortgage rates are at record low levels, but yep. but the problem is getting one because you, you you have to you have to meet standards. There's non-price rationing going on. To, to use economic jargon, and, and the standards required to obtain a mortgage and a loan are, are simply higher and more onerous than they than they've been in the past, and that and that's how the uh, the, the supply of mortgages is being rationed. A lot a lot of non price rationing is going on. I've heard that. I think it, it's true. I mean, I've talked to to mortgage brokers and real estate. Folks, and they, they do say it's very hard to get a mortgage, despite the fact that the rates are really low. And you'd think everybody would want to at that rate. Then why you, you ask the question? Then is why are the rates so low? Well, the the rates are so low is because uh, the you know the, the Fed has stepped in with this Operation Twist, and uh, they're 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 buying on the long end. Well, but the, and, and the other argument you're saying is that. It's true that at the low price, there are a lot of people that want the money. They're just for non-price reasons. They're not being allowed to get it. Right. Uh, there's there are these. Well, one, one of one of my fr- friends in, in Baltimore, he he applied for a a mortgage, and and the uh, he was in, in a position to move from the suburbs down, down to uh, into the inner city, uh, an apartment, and um, he he applied and. The problem is the apartment was uh, in an old apartment building, and, and there weren't any comparable sales. For the assessment. For, and as a result of there not being comparable sales in the area, uh, he could not get a mortgage. And, and this went right up to the day that he, the closing was supposed to occur. He wanted to move. His wife wanted to move, all the rest of it. And, and so – to tell you how, how risky this guy was, he had enough money in the bank. He just paid cash. Yeah, he, he just closed. He closed. He didn't want to miss the closing. He, he wanted the apartment, but the the bank let him on until literally the two days before the closing. They they finally uh, uh, flipped the red flag up on him, and and the reason they did is because of the requirements uh, of uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They they required comparable sales for valuation, and the bank itself wanted to unload those mortgages sure. on, on either Freddie or Fannie. I can't remember which one right now. And so that that was the thing that queered it. Now this is a non-price rationing kind of thing getting thrown into the picture. You see? Yeah, no, I've heard that too. Um, we, I, I invite you to be a guest on Econ Talk to talk about Iran. Because you'd written something very provocative on that, and I started off our discussion of hyperinflation to get to that, and we have now made a, a very uh, long forty-minute detour into the United States situation, which I'm very grateful for. But I'd like to talk in our closing minutes about Iran because uh, it's an example of hyperinflation, and it'll bring us maybe full circle. Um, you argue that Iran is experiencing a hyperinflation of about seventy percent a month, uh, the fifty being the the benchmark. Uh, how do you know that? You're, 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 I think, the only person who's noticed. Uh, people have noticed there's inflation, but you, you claim to measure it. How do you measure that, and why is it happening? Well, uh, the way you do this, Russ, is uh, the way that I, I did it for Zimbabwe. You see, Zimbabwe, they stopped uh, in, in June of 2008 actually reporting any kind of hyperinflation, any inflation numbers. But the one thing that was going on, there was a black market in the currency. And if you know the change in the value of a local currency vis-a-vis the, the U.S. dollar, then you can come back and impose purchase, what's called purchasing power parity and, and make a calculation and, and easily determine 
what the rate of hyperinflation is. A and rough, a rough. So guess. that's the that's the mechanism. In other words, you, there's one free market price in Iran, and that's the black market rate. I, I've got good information on on what the black market rate is. So How do you I, get I look, that? I can look at the changes in that free market price, which is an objective measure of value. And from that, I can then make a calculation about the implied inflation rate that's facing the Iranians. How do you so get that's the, that's how, the, the, those are the steps. I mean, it's just a two-step process. How do you get the black and, market rates, though? Where did those come from? Well, there, there are various sources. Um, the, the one th- that's been uh, that I've been using the Association of Exchange Rates in in, uh, in Iran uh, has been reporting these. Now, once I detected hyperinflation and, and uh, uh, published that, uh, they they shut down all the websites, and and I couldn't get this information for a few days. Now, now I've I have a way of uh, obtaining it, and I've pieced the. I've got a good time series on what the black market rate is. Actually, they have a multiple exchange rate. So the the official rate is twelve thousand two hundred and sixty real to the uh, dollar, and then they hit they that, that that's for. Uh, um, a, a couple of categories of items, actually two, uh, me- medicines and uh, high-priority high items. You, you get a very good rate if you qualify on, on that, and you get that at the central bank. And then there's another rate uh, of about 25400 uh that you get through licensed dealers, and that's kind of a control rate, too. And and then there's a black market rate that's, that's free, and if and and so you've got you basically have three prices for the same thing in Iran and and of course all the distortions that come with that kind of multiple exchange rate system they have so why are they experiencing hyperinflation well uh one reason uh hyperinflation you mentioned very early in the show that it, it always is ultimately a monetary phenomenon so there there's been very rapid increases in the money supply uh, for uh, since uh, you know 2010 in Iran but in addition to that um you you've had kind of what what's kind of akin to bank runs in in currency markets and that is that you have kind of panic selling of reals every once in a while or to think about it in a different way the demand for reals just collapses everyone wants to get out of the out of the real and get into gold or us dollars because they anticipate bad times <laughs> down the road. I mean, maybe they anticipate that the black market will be totally shut down, and 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 uh, and it'll be very, very, very hard to exchange any currency. So they, maybe they want to get out for that reason. It's it's an expectations thing. The people on the street expect the the real to decline in terms of its purchasing power, and they want to get something that's going to retain purchasing power. And and from time to time, you you get these big plunges in the exchange rate. And when you get the big plunges that they've experienced in September and October, of course, that leads to the implied inflation rate being very high. And then I I can go back and just look at the press, and I can look at the the price of a, a key commodity, chicken. And, and it matches up almost perfectly with the calculations I'm making from these going from the black market exchange rate to the implied inflation rate. So I'm, I'm, uh, I, and I've done this with a, a number of countries. As I say, I've studied all these 57 episodes of hyperinflation. So the, 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 um, the analysis, uh, works, works very well. And, and we had, by the way, uh, the Weimar Republic, the place where this approach of going from the exchange rate to implied inflation rates through the using purchasing power parity, uh, actually it was J- Jacob Frankel, distinguished economist, who, who did the, one of the classic studies on this. Uh, and, and Frankel published uh, in the Scandinavian Journal of Economics back in 1976 something called a monetary approach 
to the exchange rate, doctrinal aspects and empirical evidence, and and that was all about the German case where he he he, he just clarified the whole picture and and, uh, and and validated this approach that I've summarized to you. So just to, for our non-technical audience, purchasing power parity is exploiting the fact that goods of relatively uh, goods of similar quality have to sell for similar prices across across the world if they're if they're tradable. Yes. And that's what you're exploiting when you try to yep, Exactly. Um, so uh do, do the sanctions uh that that the United States and, and Europe and others have put on uh, Iranian financial transactions is that part of their uh hyperinflation? Well, see that's part of the that, that that's part of the panic selling kind of thing and the collapse and the demand for the real. That that's that the sanctions come in through that door. And changing people's expectations in uh, in, in Iran and, uh, and and motivating them to try to uh, unload what they think will be a a, a a depreciating real and getting something that's more solid. But that's on the one hand. Now, on on the other hand, you have to realize a history of sanctions has usually been counterproductive. You, you, usually, <laughs> sanctions when they're imposed tend to keep your enemy in power rather than get them out and force th- a regime change. I think they're mainly the for the thing, home country. And, and, and the thing that's concerning to me about sanctions in Iran is that not only can they be counterproductive, but they can be outright dangerous because the Iranians control the Strait of Hormuz. And, and if the sanctions get tighter and tighter and tighter and oil can't be sold, any oil can't be sold by the Iranians, they have virtually nothing to lose by shutting down the strait. Now, if they did that, 35% of the world's crude oil comes through the strait and 20% of the liquefied natural gas in the world comes through the strait. So the, the mullahs in, in short, have an ace up their sleeve, <laughs> and we don't want them to ever play it. <laughs> we don't want the straight to be shut. Well, I think that we, 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 we really would have a, a, an economic mess on our hands if we had all of a sudden the 35% of the world's crude being cut off and 20% of the LNG. Well, I think we know how that ends up. Yes. They don't end up controlling the straits, but you know, that's that's war and – other well, I, I I think I think what you you end up with then, Russ, is uh, unless we can figure out some kind of diplomatic uh, solution to the to the Iranian problem, uh, we simply have something shaping up that that will have either a horrible end or or a horror without end, one of the two. Well, let's move to a cheerier conclusion. <clears throat> you said you've been involved personally in a lot of the uh, hyperinflations, 20% of – almost 20% of the, of the all of the hyperinflations in history. Uh, how do they – how do you end them? Uh, what happened? What's the end game? Uh, I'm sure there are different ones. But have you been called in to find some attractive end games for countries that have lost control of their currency like that? Well, one – one is Zimbabwe, 2008. Now, now that was not a government proactive policy. Mugabe was a president; he still is president. And and what happened is there was a spontaneous dollarization where people just stopped refusing to use the Zimbabwe dollar, started using the U.S. dollar and a few other uh, currencies, and that forced the government in Zimbabwe to abandon eventually the Zimbabwe dollar for, even for fiscal purposes and and uh, and as a result they officially dollarized Zimbabwe in 2009 so so one way is spontaneous dollarization which leads to official dollarization or if the government is proactive they would just officially dollarize and use some foreign currency now that that's one approach. The the second approach, the, the one that I've been involved most with, is the currency board system. And and the currency board system in, in Bulgaria, for example, I was President Stoyanov's advisor in nineteen ninety seven 
And in February of 1997, the monthly inflation rate was 242% in, in Bulgaria. So they were hyperinflating well over the 50% uh, benchmark. In July, on July 1st, we installed a currency board and the, the currency board issued Bulgarian Lev. The Lev were backed 100% with Deutschmark reserves and they were allowed to trade an absolutely fixed exchange rate with the Deutschmark and uh, with full convertibility and free free trade. So so in that case, the Lev just became a clone of the Deutschmark and the hyperinflation, it, it stopped in a day. And, so the and currency- in fact, within 30 days, the interest rates in Bulgaria were down to sing, uh, single digits, so high the, single digits. The currency board's a way for the government to regain credibility by, right. by, by gathering those reserves, right? Well, by, by promising to only issue a currency if there's a 100% reserve backing for that currency with an anchor currency, and the other rule is that that, that locally issued money will trade at an absolutely fixed exchange rate with the anchor currency. And, uh, and, 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 and if, if it's, if it's a credible program that they put in, uh, and, and bang, you've, you've solved the problem because the local currency becomes the anchor currency. Well, I know, I know you've written a lot on that. I'll put a link up to, to the, some of that because it's a, it's an interesting idea. My guest today has been Steve Hankey. Steve, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Good to be with you, Russ. Thank you for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.